Hi, this is Mike Dream, Station Manager for 810KLVZ. I met author, speaker, and discipleship trainer Mike Wolf a few months back through a men's group that we both attend. After listening to what he had to say in the group, I began reading his blogs, and his heart for men and challenging message for the church led me to ask him in for some interviews. Shortly after that, we began discussing a weekly spot so he could bring this entire message forward to our listening audience. I'm now proud to announce his new show, Voice in the Wilderness, beginning right now. Hi, this is Mike Wolf. You're in Trepid Sleuth of All Things Religious. Continuing our discussion of a tripart perfect storm putting the men in the church to sleep in pews across America. We began our, uh, with our Laodicean environment of wealth and comfort a couple of weeks ago as the first part. Then last week we began our discussion of part de, the cuddly little god of Laodicea, the idol of grace. Last week, we defined an idol as any individual characteristic of God we extract from the wholeness of who he is and bow to because it suits us. When we do this, we serve a lesser, smaller God than the magnificent, holy, triune God of the Bible. The Laodiceans of Revelation uh, 3, hello, had obviously done this because they thought they were quite spiritual and in good standing with Jesus when he had a decidedly different take on their condition. The people in Matthew 7 had fashioned a lesser God around their craving for signs and wonders, but Jesus called them lawless, and it cost them their souls. Under the leadership of the idol of grace, once you pray the prayer, you are saved. There is nothing God, you, or anyone else can do to keep you from eternal life. As we will see with the contemporary worship survey I will get into here in a moment, once you are converted, you are perfect, flawless, worthy, and valuable. There is no discipleship necessary to the idol of grace. There is no process of sanctification. There is certainly no reason to ever doubt your salvation or have any works to prove the existence of your faith. You pray the prayer and show up in your temple on Sunday mornings and the deal is done. It never has anything to do with you. There is no partnership between God and man that leads to fruit bearing on this earth. As one of the worship prophets of the idol of grace sings, there's only grace in believing that's enough. The message in all of this, we are very good at creating idols without even knowing it. We allow our environment, our cultures, and our circumstances to mold God into our image rather than allowing him to mold us into his. Last week I described the idol of grace. I defined him. Today you get to meet him up close and personal. Where does he raise his ugly head in modern Christendom? Well, let's talk about how we've redefined the very word grace. If you ask most people across this country what the definition of grace is, they would say unmerited favor, right? That would be wrong. There is a word in Hebrew for grace or loving kindness, favor or favored, which most is like that definition. But now I want you to hear what it is in the Greek. The word is charis. And it means the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life. Now anyone can claim unmerited favor. And if you're under the spell of the idol of grace, that's certainly what you claim. 
but grace as it's defined in the Greek, for you to have grace in the Greek, the New Testament version of grace, there has to be a reflection in the life. And how many people would that fit today? According to the polls, not very many. But this makes perfect sense to change the definition of it from the old to the new, because Jesus, Jesus made it possible for the divine influence upon the human heart through the coming of the Holy Spirit. Remember in Hebrews 8, he says, my new covenant will not be like my old one, where I led my people by the hand, external covenant. But now I'm going to write my laws on their minds and their hearts. The whole reason Jesus came, the whole reason he paid the price for our sin was to usher the Holy Spirit into men's hearts. He became an internal God instead of an external God. And now, as we saw with the deeds exam in the Revelation churches we looked at, he expects to see the reflection of his divine touch in our life. He has empowered us. He has given us this marvelous deposit of himself in our very hearts. And he expects to see the reflection of that. So we can see that just in our definition of grace, we can see the idol of grace's influence. He wants us to think it's unmerited favor. Nothing you can do about it before or after you're saved. It's there for you no matter what. That's not the New Testament definition. Not at all. If there's no reflection of the divine influence upon the heart in the life of the person, then that's not grace. And isn't it interesting how we react to people judging one another's salvation? Because we see him here too. We've already seen in Revelation 3 and Matthew 7 that Jesus alone judges us. Why? In 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and 5, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, Paul says, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light both the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, hey, I don't know of anything wrong with me. I don't know of any roadblock between me and God. And he says, yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. So what is he saying? He's saying we are the worst possible arbiters of our own condition. We can't judge ourselves. There's only one who judges. John 5.22 says this. It says, even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Okay, who has all judgment? The Son. Who else has judgment? Nobody. In other words, not you, not me, not any other man can judge my salvation. I can't even judge my own salvation. Under the idol of grace, we tell someone they're saved. We reassure them they're saved. They pray a prayer and we say, praise God, brother, now you're saved. And we're deemed loving and encouraging. But we even question somebody's salvation. We go to a brother and we say, brother, 
I know you say you're a believer, but man, you know, you're cheating on your wife, you're hooked on pornography, you're cheating at work. I, I, I just, I don't get it. Help me out here. You know, wh where is your faith? Where's, you know, where's Jesus in all of this? We go to somebody like that and we're deemed to be judgmental. Who is the most judgmental of the two? The one absolutely reassuring somebody that they are saved, which they don't know, or merely questioning. And we can question. Jesus questioned men's motivations all the time. So can we. As one of the guys at uh, Lighthouse where I minister is fond of saying, he said, I'm not a judge, but I am a fruit inspector. We are to be fruit inspectors. We're to help our brothers out when they're struggling, especially if they're living lives in hypocrisy. And yet, we're deemed judgmental if we just question. Whereas the person who absolutely reassures is deemed loving when they are the ones that are the most judgmental between the two. The idol of grace has no place for judgment of any kind because once you pray the prayer, you're in and there's nothing else to know. This defies the very biblical definition of grace. Now, this has led to the end of any healthy debate over the issue of, here we go, eternal security. I'd like to read something, if I could, from my upcoming book, Laodicea, about this issue of eternal security. Quote, a debate has raged for thousands of years as to whether we can forfeit or God can rescind salvation once granted. There are valid arguments to be made on both sides of the issue with perfectly valid scriptures. And so debate in an area like that is healthy. Unfortunately, it has become a non-issue because the overwhelming majority of modern Christendom's preachers and teachers have decided there's no debate to be had. This is understandable under the current rule of the idol of grace because such a concept as any judgment leading to revocation of salvation would be unconscionable. I believe it is this attitude that has largely led us into the morbid polling results we now see from those who claim to follow Christ. While there are mysteries involved here, Jesus told us any tree would be known by its fruit. Under that litmus test, there is no mystery at all as to what is reinforcing the consistent, disturbing polls. Allow me to pose a few questions that might help us rethink how we choose to approach this issue, coming from a bit different viewpoint than you've possibly heard. The answer is true to any mystery, no definitive answer exists. When biases are stripped away, how can anyone truly know in the case of a mystery? And why is that not acceptable to us? What other than our own pride makes us think we must have an answer to the patently unanswerable? Again, great verses on either side of this debate. What is so wrong with admitting this is one of the great mysteries from the one whose thoughts are as high above our thoughts as the heavens are above the earth? What would be wrong with trying to learn how to live out of a balanced understanding of both sides of the debate? Perhaps embracing the mystery is part of what will lead us out of our current state of affairs. If we hold to the dogma that you are once saved, always saved, and we dismiss voices raised to the contrary, we end up with our current situation. On the other hand, those who say salvation can unequivocally be forfeited often slingshot to an opposite and far corner of the dogmatic universe. If we hold to their theology, dismissing the argument for eternal security, 
we can end up embracing a religion of hard-hearted, works-driven legalism. And the failures of that dogma also dot the historical landscape of the church. Holding to either of the dogmas while summarily dismissing the arguments of the others carries with it many dangers. Therefore, I ask why we can't have the discernment to see both sides of the argument, the humility to admit it is a mystery and therefore we don't know the answer, and the faith in God to be comfortable in our own skin with not knowing. If we glean truth from each argument, we might just come to fear God without turning him into a cruel taskmaster. We might also find both the comfort of his grace and the fear of his judgment that leads us to embrace, embrace both the grace that saved us and the good works that grace saved us for. Unquote. The man who wishes to follow Jesus into the kingdom of heaven on earth has nothing to lose by embracing his mercies, but never dismissing his ability to judge and therefore rescind what he alone granted. We may have everything to lose by ignoring God's ultimate power over all he created. Again, I admit I don't know the answer, but we can no longer ignore the results of the current dogma that rules over modern Christendom. What an increasingly skeptic world now witnesses is the fruit that has been born from it. For that fact alone, I choose to acknowledge the mystery and admit the God who grants salvation may also be capable of rescinding it. Why can't we admit that it's a mystery? And any time you have great verses on both sides of an argument, that's exactly what you have is a mystery. Yet under the idol of grace, there is no mystery. Once saved, always saved is just the rule. And that's too bad because it's led to the lack of a healthy fear of God in the church. Okay, once again, if you tell an apathetic, post-abandoning son of Adam, he's saved and it doesn't matter how he lives or who he actually follows, and that is the path he will take every time. He'll hate it, it'll kill him. But that's what he'll do because that's the curse he's inherited. So, if we are to break free of the spell of the idol of grace, we must at least acknowledge the debate, understand there's a good reason for it, and acknowledge no man knows in the case of a mystery. Another area where we see the, uh, the idol of grace rearing his ugly head is in the unbalanced scales we see between evangelism and discipleship. The Where Are You survey that was done by uh, uh, Willow Creek Community Church about 10 years ago in Chicago, one of the America's largest congregations, came up with a smashing point that, hey, the people who are the most unhappy with the church across the board are the people we'd call disciples. Why? Because we really don't have anything for them. All of our programs, all of our preaching, everything we're doing is aimed at seekers. That's what it's all about. And it's very true. We do everything to get men saved and little to disciple them. And I believe that's why we have the sad poll results. But again, it makes sense in our Laodicean environment. Evangelism offers instant gratification. Discipleship does not. Evangelism typically takes little time. Discipleship takes years. Evangelism is much cleaner than the nasty business of discipleship. Evangelism can be done from a pulpit or over a phone. Discipleship must be done hands-on in the gutters of others' messed up lives. Discipleship is hard. It's an enduring, messy business. 
and most in our modern world concerned with financial security above all else, have little time for it. But discipleship is the standard. Discipleship is the Great Commission, and it's the only one God set. It's the only one the true God set. It's not so with the idol of grace. And sadly, most of our modern-day church uh, congregations have become little more than conversion factories. We're there to get people saved and then warehouse them in our temples, and we go on looking for the next seeker. So we see it in the unbalanced scales of evangelism and discipleship. Now I want to talk about a place where he's really evident. And years ago, I used to be a worship leader uh, in the church. And I really, I love worship. I, I, I love, it gets me closer to God than just about anything else. But then God started opening my eyes to the words that we were singing. And it became more and more and more disturbing to me until I finally had to just step down. I couldn't do it anymore. And that broke my heart because I really loved it. But let me share uh, uh, something pretty interesting with you. There's perhaps no group of leaders in modern Christendom who have come under more of the spell of the idol of grace than our worship leaders. Given the extreme emotional environment of what they do, it's really no surprise. The idol of grace <clears throat> is Jesus, the one who came full of grace and truth, apart from truth. Grace fills us with emotion as it should. Truth does not. Truth confronts us unceasingly and persistently with reality. Truth is, and it cares not how we feel about it. Jesus constantly confronted people with truth, even as he showed them grace. How could he do anything else? For he was the God of grace and truth. He was the truth, the light, and the way. I spent many hours over the last couple of weeks listening to popular Christian worship stations. And here are the results. They show clearly the completely unbalanced scales of grace and truth when it comes to who God is, who we are, and who we have come to view, how we have come to view both him and ourselves. Okay, the first part of this is, is called God's character. In other words, these were... Um, and there was like one per song. In other words, how did that song describe God in general? And here's what I came up with. Now, keep in mind, some of this is subjective. Obviously, if five people did this, five, you know, there would be five different results. But I think in general, they would all agree. Okay, forgiver, merciful one, he was referred to as eight times. Deliverer and savior, he was he was. Uh, uh, described as five times. Comforter, loving, good, or friend, he was described as 13 times. Shelter or fortress, two times. Healer, hope, light, eight times. Glorious, holy, or everlasting one, five times. That's all well and good until you see how unbalanced it was with all the other things Jesus is. Jesus is our judge. Again, let me go back to John 5, and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all will honor the Son, even as they honored the Father. The word honor there includes reverence and awe, in other words, a fear of God. 
2 Timothy 4.1, Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Okay, so Jesus in those passages and many others is referred to as judge. Guess how many times I heard him described as judge in all these hours of listening to worship music? You guessed it, not once. Goose egg, nada. He is a fearful one. Again, John 5, 22. We are to honor, to revere, to fear him. Philippians 2, 12, Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Well, before who? Who saved us? Jesus. So we are to work out our salvation in fear of Jesus Christ, in the healthy fear of God. There are several other verses, both Old Testament and New Testament. Revelation 19, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And then it ends up by saying, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is clothed with a robe dripped in blood, and he brings an army to conquer the earth. So could we say he is to be feared? How many times do you think I heard that? I heard that zero times. How about just? Zechariah 9, 9, Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. How many times do you think I heard him described as just? You guessed it, none. Now let's get down to comments. In other words, these are, these are the number of times I heard a certain comment. Um, he's my friend. I heard that three times. I am a conqueror. I overcome. I am strong. I heard that 12 times. I am saved. I am free. I heard that 16. I am worthy, valuable, beautiful, and perfect. I heard that 28 times. He'll never leave me, he carries me. I heard that 30 times. His mercy is over me, he, he, he's grace and forgiveness, 35 times. And are you ready for this? He loves me 100 times. How about he commands me? John 15 is just loaded five times in John 15. Um, just a couple of examples. You are my friends if you do what I command you. This I command you that you love one another. In Luke 6, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I command? He's our commander. How many times do you think I heard that? You guessed it, none. How about discipleship? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Again, the great commission Go therefore into all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. Go make disciples. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all things I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Those are disciples, and the Bible is full of references to discipleship. How many times do you think I heard the word disciple or discipleship come up? 
You guessed it, not once. And now I want to close with something else that really disturbs me about um, our modern worship, and that is the promises that we make to God. We're supposed to be worshiping him, and yet we stand there singing in worship, telling him about all the things we're going to do. Now think about this. When you say some, to someone, I will, I will get the groceries, I will iron the clothes, whatever, and then you don't, what is that? A promise made and broken becomes a lie, and that's sin. And that's why Jesus said, don't make promises. He said again, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, new sheriff in town, I'm changing it. Make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. Jesus said, I know you guys are sinners. (laughs) The old covenant didn't work because God expected you to keep your promises and you couldn't. Don't make promises. And yet, how many times did I hear the words, I will, stated in those songs? 71. 71 times. Okay, folks, we're running out of time, so we're going to continue this on next week. I finally filled my 30 minutes. What do you think about that, Sarge? Pretty cool. Anyway, Until next week when we're going to look at some other areas where the idol of grace has reared his ugly head in modern Christendom, and we're going to continue on this discussion about modern worship music. This is Mike Wolf, the man with a face truly made for radio, signing off. You've been listening to the new Voice in the Wilderness broadcast with author, speaker, and discipleship trainer Mike Wolf. If you're feeling led to know more concerning Mike's challenging message to men and the church, His website is thereconnectedchurch.org. Or you can email Mike at reconnectedchurch at gmail.com and request to be put on his blog list. You can find his books, The Lost Supper, and his devotional series, Praying Today's Psalms, on Amazon. Until this same time next week, remember all you sons of Adam, we are made to thrive by joining the most exciting man who ever lived on the greatest adventure that ever was. 